0: hold, since it's not doing anything. <laughs> so, um, How many of you have heard me before speak? Oh, good. <laughs> good, good. Because um, what I wanted to share, I was afraid everybody had already heard before, so that's probably why I want to share it. I want to start by reading Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold, I will, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband. And you will no longer call me Master, for I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. And that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever." Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. I remember the first time I read this passage and I thought, Valley of Achor means Valley of Suffering. And I thought, whoa, what kind of God leads people into suffering? That was many, many, many years ago. And it's pretty amazing when you see this whole passage and you you look at it because basically what he's saying is, I'm going to lead you into the wilderness, and not only am I going to lead you into the wilderness, but I'm going to lead you into a valley of suffering. Valleys are dark and dangerous, and uh, you know not a place you would particularly choose. (laughs) And yet he says, I'm going to do that, and in that place you're going to sing. You're going to sing. And out of that, and because of that, you're going to come to know me intimately like a, a husband. And I will betroth you to myself forever. Um, I, after I understood a little more of the nature and character of God, I began to understand this even more, even from my own life. Uh you guys couldn't care less about what I have to say unless you, you know who I am because I could just be anybody. So I just want to share a little bit about where I've come from and how I've gotten to the place where I am today in God. My, um, my dad was an alcoholic. When I was born, he had gotten a teenage girl pregnant and wanted a divorce um, I had three other siblings older than me. My mom refused to give him the divorce. He flew into a rage. I was an infant in my mom's lap. He picked me up and threw me against the wall, knocked me unconscious and began to strangle my mother. Just as she was about to pass out, my grandfather walked in the room and saved her life, literally. He was a very violent man when he was sober, but the minute he started drinking it was uh, he was just out of control. So He happened to be in the Marine Corps um, when he realized he was in trouble. My mom called the police. He took off to the Marine base, told his commanding officer what he'd done, and they shipped him out overnight to keep him out of trouble. So he ended up in Hawaii for four years. Now, I want to point out something as you listen to to some of the highlights that I'm going to share, how God... Romans 8.28 is really true. He takes what Satan meant for evil, and he'll use it for good, if you let him. So that put my mother in a, in a very, very um, desperate situation. She didn't work, and she had a three-year-old, two-year-old. My sister had died, and then myself was an infant. So uh, she, we lived in Miami, and he wouldn't send any money to her. So she had no money, and she knew no one. She ended up running out of food and had no money. She moved into the projects and um, got down on her knees one night, and she prayed for the first time in her life. And she said, God, if you're real and if you care, if you'll send food for my children, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And she went to bed. The next morning, she had just moved into this neighborhood. No one knew her. She opened her front door, and she said the porch from one end to the other was stacked, packed with groceries, bags and bags and bags and bags of groceries. So she kept her promise to God. She found a church that week, and my mother is 75 years old. To this day, she still serves the Lord. So um, I grew up in church, which probably saved my my mental uh capacity kept me sane and also uh, kept me alive in my heart so when I was two I we lived in Miami my mom had not had our us vaccinated I caught polio the epidemic hit in 57 and I was paralyzed on the right side said I'd never walk no none of the daycares would take care of me my mother had found a job and so she had a problem she had a I spent months in the hospital but when I got out uh, no one would take me babysit so but she had to work cuz she had to feed her kids so she prayed and she had joined a church that taught that that there, it was a cessationist church that you know miracles didn't happen today god doesn't speak today but in that church there was one little old lady Mrs. Taylor who believed that god could heal So when she heard about my situation, she volunteered to watch me free. And she asked my mom, could she lay hands on me and pray for me every day? And my mom was a brand-new Christian. She didn't know any better. So she said, sure. (laughs) So Mrs. Taylor would lay hands on me and pray for me every single day. About a year and a half later, I wore a brace. I was still paralyzed. Um... Mrs. Taylor was carrying me and she tripped and fell down the stairs and broke her hip so she couldn't take care of me anymore. That was on a Friday. My mom said Saturday when she went to put my brace on my toe moved and she thought that was weird and then the next day I moved my foot and she said by the end of the week I was running. You just look at the timing. Mrs. Taylor was so faithful so faithful and when when the rubber met the road, God just went, now. And it so impacted, whoa is right, it so impacted my mother and Mrs. Taylor. So, because my mom said Mrs. Taylor was just, just destroyed in her heart. because She knew no one would take care of me. That I, and so, as you can see, I, I can walk. <laughs> and that, was, um, that was a really, it was a real big kiss for my mom back then. When I was about four, my dad came back from Hawaii and for some reason came back to my mom. And we moved, uh, the Marines shipped us off to Virginia, to Quantico, and it isn't long before my mom's pregnant again. And my dad would tell me all the time, uh, four years old, he'd say, you I hate, but this baby I'm going to love. And so my sister was born, And for whatever reason, my dad spoiled her. He was just crazy about this baby. And when she was a few weeks old, she was crying. She was in a little car bed, and my mom wasn't coming fast enough to take care of her, so I went and picked her up. My foot caught on the corner of the little car bed, and I dropped her on her head, and she was unconscious. So we all rushed to the hospital. They end up air-flighting my baby sister to another hospital because she had a massive concussion and fractured her skull. And my I'm in the car with my dad. My mom had run in, and my dad says to me, I'm in the back seat, he turns around, and he says to me, if that baby dies, I will kill you. And, you know, I'd been beat enough and hit enough, and etc. to know that he meant it. And so I started crying, which... Which um, I knew not to cry, but I couldn't help it. Because if I cried, I always got beat worse. For whatever reason, he he chose me out of the five kids. I don't know why. I never knew why he hated me so much. But um, I couldn't stop crying, and he started screaming, "If you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about." So I just crumpled in the floorboard of the back seat of the car. I'm five years old, and I prayed the first prayer that I can ever remember praying. And it went something like, God, please let my sister live so I can live, and please make me stop crying so I don't get beat. And in that instant, I met God. I literally, physically felt him, and I knew he was good. Immediately, I knew he was good. I had not experienced good. My mother loved me, but my mother was extremely emotionally shut down, as you can imagine, and distant. And not affectionate by nature, she just isn't. So I had never remembered being held in my life. Um, so God picks me up and I immediately stop crying instantly and I feel him begin to rock me. And I know who he is. He didn't I don't remember I don't remember him saying anything he didn't need to. I knew it was like I knew him already, my spirit, had been with him before my spirit ever came to live in my body so I remember thinking um, wow if this is what God's really like I'm in for the rest of my life I'm in love I had never felt anything so good and so pure and so that's what I did I began to have a relationship with God the Father." A very real one. I talked to him just like I'm talking to you. And I could feel him. I could walk in my bedroom. And say daddy. Daddy please come. And I would feel him. And he would be so real. And I would turn to him. My dad would beat me. Cuss me out. Throw me across the room. Slap me. Whatever. And I knew where to go. I knew where to go. And I'd go. And I'd run in my closet most of the time. And hide in the back of my closet. And God would come. And he'd tell me the truth. And so when I was seven, we had a horrific car accident. My dad was driving drunk. The car, uh, he was going over 120 miles an hour. He was diabetic, so he was having an insulin reaction on top of being drunk, both of those at the same time. I remember my mom telling him to slow down, and I remember him just cussing like crazy, and saying, if you think this is fast, just watch. And he just put his foot to the floor, and we, we were supposed to turn at this curve. There was this road on the way home. You'd come up over hill and come down, and it turned. Well, he came up over the hill and came down, but instead of even trying to turn, he just went straight. The car hit an eight-foot-high chain-link fence, which it caught it. It flipped the car end over end in the air. They said it flipped three times in the air. The back door got... Somehow broken off. My brother and sister, who was older than me, went flying out. And it just so happened, just so happened, coincidence, right? That this car, because it was flipping end over end, it went right between this orchard. It was going into a pecan orchard if, in Georgia. If you've ever seen a pecan tree, they're really big. And if the car had gone this way, it would have hit the trees and. Probably killed us all. But it flipped this way, went right between the row of trees. And just so happened that morning, a dump truck had trouble, needed to go in the shop. So it it had a load of gravel. It just so happened that it dropped, it unloaded its gravel in that exact spot where our car landed upside down on that mountain of gravel. And the gravel just sank like a pillow. It kept us from being crushed to death just so happened. <laughs> so the state patrol came and uh, literally he told my mom the next day, he said, I expected to find everybody in that car dead. He said that that you, nobody should have survived. No one died. My dad had a concussion. He was in the hospital. My mom broke her ankle. I was trapped in the car, gasoline pouring all over me, and my hand had gotten caught up under the in the window the windows were power windows there was no power so they couldn't get my hand out so it took quite a while for them to get me out Uh, I was seven and um, we get home that we all go to the hospital we had little minor cuts and bruises that was it it was miraculous my brother and sister that that had got thrown out they were fine my brother had lost his shoes and I remember him when they got me out of the car. He was walking around. anybody see my shoes? Anybody see my shoes? I gotta have my shoes. That's the only shoes I have, you know. And um, but that was he. He it's so funny. He was talking to me this week, and he said, "You know, that was my biggest worry. I didn't care if I had a concussion or any. I just wanted my shoes." <laughs> so we were just so poor that that was a big deal to have shoes. And we go home that late that night, and. We had we had no food. We'd gone days without anything to eat. And I I had a a habit of I didn't have a real bed. We had found a mattress in the dump. We lived in, right near the county dump and my brother and I that was our job. We found whatever we needed in the dump. And when we'd see a car, they had to drive in our driveway, go behind our house and through the woods to get to the dump. So we knew when there was fresh pickings. So we run down there as soon as they left and go find out what treasures there were. And we had found a mattress there, and my mom had propped it up on some blocks and bricks. So it just fit in my window. And in Georgia, you have the big, tall windows, floor to ceiling because it's so hot. We didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have fans, 102 degrees in the summer. I could see daylight through the walls, and when we swept, we knew where the holes were in the floor to sweep the dirt down through the floor. The house we lived in should have been condemned, it would be today, if it was, nobody would be allowed to live in that. Rats, big as cats in our house, and snakes, and the whole deal, but <clears throat> um, I had my, my mattress was, perfect because I would put my pillow in the window seal and every single night I talked to my daddy it was I just told him about my day I talked to him like he was my best friend because he was he was my only friend and so I was telling him about the car accident and how we hadn't eaten and we didn't have any food and would he please send somebody somehow I, I didn't say send somebody I asked him would he please send us some food and a few hours later late in the night, there was a knock on our front door, and it was a couple from our church. And nobody ever came to see us because my dad was so violent. The one time the preacher came, my dad told him if he ever set foot on his property again, he'd kill him. So he never came back. So um, for someone to come was unbelievable. That was the first time I ever remember a knock on our front door, ever. <laughs> so... Uh, we went running, us kids all went to the front door. My mom had her ankle broken, so she was sitting. And a couple from church brought in all these groceries and put them on the dining room table. And I I climbed up on top of the table. I was so excited. And I remember thinking, sitting on top of that table, pulling food out, I remember thinking, I wonder if this is what Christmas feels like or a birthday, because I hadn't had either. I wonder if this feeling in my stomach is what that feels like, all that food. And when I, when I finished getting all the food out, I had a mountain of food around me, food I'd never seen because we lived off of, um, my mom would buy cornmeal when she had money and add water to it and cook it. And we ate that a lot. We'd buy grits because they're really cheap, ground-up corn. And buy the instant milk, we never bought jar milk because she could dilute it and make it go further. And so I remember many times eating cornflakes with bugs, live bugs floating in in it in my water. A lot of times we just have water, and we'd eat it anyway. I remember looking at my brother the first time that happened, and his bowl was swimming, and my bowl was swimming, and it was in water and cornflakes. And um, I, said, I said to him, I said, I'll eat it if you'll eat it. He says, I'm eating it, and we ate it. You just do what you got to do if you're hungry enough, you you will. And I did, a lot of times. Cornmeal, full of bugs, we'd eat it anyway. So I'm sitting there with all this food on the table piled up around me. And I sit back on my heels and I said, God, when I grow up, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to take food to little boys and girls that are hungry just like me. And... That, at seven years old, that seed went deep in my heart, and I'm going to fast forward now to when, when I'm 12. Kids at school wouldn't have anything to do with me because, I mean, literally I wore clothes that came from the dump, and it was a small town in South Georgia, so everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew my dad was the town drunk, and um, so they just ignored me or made fun of me, either one. And at church, we didn't, my mom always, always took us to church. That was, my dad wouldn't ever go, and he hated it. But for some reason, it was the only thing that my mom put her foot down with my dad. And for some reason, my dad said, okay, we had one car, and he controlled the car. But he always would have that car back for Wednesday night church, Sunday morning and Sunday night. Always did. I don't ever remember him not doing that, which is a mystery. It had to be the grace of God So we always went to church, but the kids at church um, made fun of me, too, and my sisters and my brother. And that, I I remember being really young and thinking, that isn't the way it should be. Somehow I knew, because God wasn't that way to me. And it just didn't make sense to me that God could be so good and kind and not care if I was wearing rags and not care that my hair hasn't been washed in a week and not care that I was barefoot. And yet they did, and they put such a high priority on it. It really confused me as a child. I couldn't understand it at all. So um, that was very, very difficult and very painful it wasn't until when I was seven was the first time I knew I was poor. I didn't know that before. God was so good to me. I didn't even know there was anything wrong, really. I thought everybody's family was like mine. I didn't know that we were that we were different. Not really, not until I was seven. And there were some kids in my Sunday school class were talking about a birthday party that somebody had had. And everybody in the class had been invited. And somebody said, well, Rhonda, why didn't you come? And... I said, well, I wasn't invited and the person that the party was for said something like, Oh, you know why she didn't come? She's poor and then I remember thinking, I'm poor? What is what is that? I had no idea until then. So then I began to understand why people treated me differently after that point. And when I was twelve I had asked God, I told him, I said, You know what, God, you're my best friend. I love you more than anything on this planet. But could I have one friend that had skin? <laughs> could, I, could I just have one friend? Because I'd never had a friend on earth. And that year, my dad was always drinking and always getting in trouble and always moving or not paying our bills, and we'd move in the middle of the night. I mean, it was just constant that thing so that happened again he beat somebody up with a tire tool and it looked like the guy was going to die so he, t- we took off in the middle of the night and moved away to keep him from going to jail we moved way out in the country and um, and um, so I'm, I go to this new school and I was always really smart I love to learn I, o- I still do to this day School was um, a place for me to, f- to find something that um, could help me not think about life. <laughs> and learning was one of those things. So I was very smart, usually the, the t- smartest kid in the class. Well, this year I was in sixth grade, and this girl was also accustomed to being the smartest one in the class. Her name was Diane. So we had this competition going on, you know, oh it was brutal it was just brutal I was always looking to see if she got an A plus you know, cause, and to see just how many extra credit points we could get I mean it was brutal and she was a real rough girl she was one of those that beat everybody up I was a mouse I was terrified of everybody and everything and so um, word got back to me that she told everybody she was going to beat me up by Christmas she said by Christmas I'm going to beat her up So I am even more afraid of her. We happen to ride the same school bus. I'm sitting on the front seat of the school bus, right behind the bus driver, because it's safe. Safety was my main goal in life, because I just suffered so much pain. So I'm sitting there behind the bus driver, and doing what I almost always did, was I would go inside myself and talk to God all the time. I lived with him. So I was doing that. And I heard God say, Rhonda, I need to ask you a favor. And I said, sure, God, anything. I'll do anything for you. And he said, I need you to go invite Diane to go to church with you. And I went, anything but that. (laughs) I said, God, you heard her. She wants to beat me up by Christmas. And that's not very far. (laughs) If I go ask her to go to church, she's going to beat me up. She always sat in the very back of the bus, too. So... He said, "No, Rhonda, really, I need you to do this for me. Would you just do this for me?" And oh, you know, God, please, please, anything. I'll do anything. I promise. Just not that. I mean, it was it was awful. And so we have this dialogue back and forth, back and forth, and finally, his love won my heart over. And I said, "Okay, God, fine. I'm going to go ask her. But when I get beat up, I'm going to tell you it's your fault." <laughs> and so I walked that. Ten miles of that bus to the back, shaking like a leaf. I was terrified. I knew this was it. And so I walked right up to her, and I go, I'm not kidding, this is exactly how I did it. She's sitting down. She saw me coming. She told me later, she told the girl sitting beside her, great, now I'm going to beat her up. She already had her plan. So I looked down at her, and I said, you don't want to go to church every Sunday, do you? And I'm shaking my head, no, don't, don't do it. And she says, what did you just say? And I said, you you don't want to go to church with me Sunday? I wouldn't recommend using that technique, by the way. And um, (laughs) and she goes, yeah. And she told me later, I told her, I said, great, I'll tell my mom, she'll come pick you up. And so I found out later that about two or three days before this, she had never been to church, never read a Bible, she had this urge to know God. So she got down on her knees because she thought that's probably what you need to do. And she said, God, if you're real, would you have somebody invite me to go to church? That's exactly what she said. And two or three days later, I'm the one. We became instant sisters. She became the friend that had skin that I had asked God for. To this day, I just talked to her the other day. That was 40-something years ago. Um, I was 12, so 40 years ago that happened, and she's still one of my best friends. We got baptized together. We were just, um, she was just a huge gift. She would, because she was so bold when she would spend the night with me or be hanging out at my house, she would literally get between my dad and me when he was hitting me and stop him. She she just was that kind of friend um, and refused to let him beat me. When she was there. So she was just a huge gift. When I. Um, back up a little bit. When I was seven. My dad. On top of the physical beatings. He began to sexually abuse me as well. So I had all of those issues. But. What happened to that point. When he started doing that. It just drove me. Into God's heart. Like nothing else had. I mean. he God became my everything. And. I just fell more and more and more in love with God. And I remember really young, God telling me one day, he said, he said, Rhonda, don't you ever compare me to your earthly dad. He said, I am nothing like man. Nothing. He said, I am other. And I never forgot that. So I didn't have the, you know, a lot of people do. They they put on God what their earthly father's like I never had to deal with that I never God was so far removed to me from what my human experience was I didn't have any problem believing that's true that he's other I touched him I felt him I was with him And, and there was not anything in him that was impure or unkind or malice at all so that helped me a lot knowing that truth um fast forward now to when I'm 15. I had told my mom when I was seven what my dad was doing to me, and her response was, um, that w- that won't ever happen to you again. I'll take care of it. And that's what that was her response. So I'm assuming she confronted my dad, but it continued. Um, he just did what he wanted to do whenever he wanted to, and he brought his drinking buddies in on it, and It was just, my life was hell. So when I'm 15, my mom finally decides that she's had enough of his affairs and um, et cetera. So one day, in a fit of anger, she kicks him out. And she comes to me. I had been working. I'd been working since I was 12 to put food on the table. And so she came and said, I need you to get a different job. Uh, now that your dad's gone, I had two younger sisters now, 12 and 5, and so I was the oldest at home. I was 15. My brother and sister had both left home already, and so uh, she found me another job. When I was On my 16th birthday, I went to work at this new job, and the manager of the store raped me. And... I, if I, had, if I have one thing in my life that I regret, it's, it's what, how I responded. Because in the past, I had always run to God when things happened to me. I'd just run right into his heart, and I'd find what I needed to go on. But for whatever reason, I lost it. I just lost it. And I walked away from that saying... That's it, God. I'm done. I'm just done. I'm done with life. I'm done with you. I'm done with people. I'm just done. And I shut everything down. I became a robot, is the best way I can describe it. I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I never missed, but I sat there like a block of ice. Uh, God would come to me, and I knew him so well. I knew his presence, and I could feel him. And I would just push him away. I'd say, no, you don't. You are not coming to me. And I wouldn't let him anywhere near me. I'd have dreams. I've always been a dreamer. And the Lord would come to me in dreams. And I'd get up so angry that he was coming after me. Just furious. And I did that for two years. I lived like that for two years. Money had always been the biggest issue in our life. So money became my God. I I just decided fine great I'm just going to make money and I did I worked I worked two jobs I went to school and saved I supported my mom and two kids two sisters and um, ended up when I was 18 after two years I had $10,000 in the bank saved after buying a car and paying paying for it and supporting my mom and in 1976 $10,000 was a lot of money but I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. I know what hell is. Hell is not having God in your life. I was a walking, living life of hell. So I graduated high school. It was June 1976, Sunday afternoon. I'm sitting on the foot of my bed looking out my window. And for whatever reason light broke through the trees those beams of light and hit the ground and when I saw it for whatever reason I remembered what it felt like to have God hold me in his arms and that memory formed this tiny little crack in my heart and God did not ask my permission people say he's a gentleman well maybe but In this case, he just invaded my space like nothing. I couldn't stop him. I felt him. He went, and he picked me up just like I was five years old, and he held me, and he began to rock me. I threw myself on the floor off the bed, face down, and I'm wailing. I'm sobbing my guts out on the floor because I feel his love, and I was overwhelmed by it. And when I could finally talk, I I knew the scriptures super duper well. Since I was 12, I, I ate the New Testament. That was my, I didn't read the Old Testament much, but I loved the New Testament. So I knew it inside and out. So I knew that when you've done what I had done for two years, walked away from God, that you had to confess your sins. And if you confessed him, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So I'm laying there and I start confessing my sins. And I literally hear God and he goes Shh Welcome home. I've missed you and I still love you. (laughs) That was exactly what he said. And I said, But God, you don't know what I've done. Like he didn't. You know, you say dumb things when you're (laughs) I think back to that and go, that was the dumbest thing I've probably said in my whole life to God. You don't know what I've done. Of course he did. Uh, but that's what I said. I just have to be honest. I said, God, you don't know what I've done. And he goes, shh. I've missed you. Welcome home. I know what the prodigal felt like in Jesus' parable. I know that. I was one. And so... I kept trying to convince him that he needed to let me confess, you know. And he just wouldn't let me. He would not let me. (laughs) Such is the nature and character of our God. Because he knew what I needed. I didn't need to confess. I needed him. And so my heart was already there. (laughs) So he just loved on me. He held me, and I cried. I cried for hours. No joke. And at the end of that time, God says to me, Rhonda, what do you want? What's your dream? And I got angry. I was furious. Cause see, looking back on it I, I understand why. I knew how I knew how to cope with punishment, pain, being knocked around and slapped, and I knew what to do with that. I, I was comfortable with that. But he was offering me mercy. What do you want? And I screamed at him. I said, what do you mean asking me what do I want? I need to be punished. I was guilty. I've been walking away from you for two years. I've crucified you over and over and over again. What do you mean asking me what do I want? And he just repeated it. He says, no, I really want to know. What do you want? And I just came back at him again. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. I wanted him. Man, if he had punished me, I would have been a happy girl. <laughs> I really would have. That's, that's, that just shows you how broken I was and how, how little value I felt towards myself. So he came back to me the second time, and he said, Rhonda, why would I punish you for something that I've already punished my son for? And I went, oh, you're right. You're right. Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> so I was finally, after a little while, able to answer his question. I said, Well, God, you know me better than I know myself. And you know that the only dream I've ever held in my heart is to be a wife and a mom. That's all I've ever dreamed of. It's all I care about. And I said, But I've been so abused and so used that there's no man on this planet that would ever want somebody like me. And you know, God didn't respond. He didn't answer me. And so I assumed that that meant I was right. And so I laid there for quite a while wrestling with the reality that I probably wasn't going to get married and my dream was probably not going to happen. And so... um After a while, I was finally able to lay it down and give it to the Lord. And I told him, I said, it's okay, God. If if I never get married, you're enough for me. And I'll live the rest of my life perfectly satisfied, perfectly happy, because you're enough for me. And so that dream died. Except a seed fall into the ground and die, it cannot bring forth fruit. Two weeks later, I was at work. And I hadn't dated. I was 18. I didn't. Um, I just, I just was so messed up. I just wasn't interested. So, and I was afraid of men. I didn't quite figure out how I was going to get married if I was afraid. But I didn't think that out. But that was just reality. And so, <laughs> so I was at work, and this guy came through my checkout line, and he bought a pack of Wrigley Spearmint Gum. And he talked about the weather and whatever, and that was the end of it. And the next day, he came in again, and he bought another pack of Wrigley Spearmint gum, and he in my checkout, and he talked about the weather and whatever. So he did that for two weeks, every day, buying this gum. Well, the cashier beside me, after three or four days of it, she leans over to me after he left, and she goes, I think that guy likes you. And I said, no, he just likes gum. <laughs> and I had no idea. After two weeks, he phoned me on a Friday night and asked me to go out with him on a date, and I was terrified out of my mind. I wanted to, sort of, but I was so afraid that I actually lied to him and told him I had plans and turned him down. So that was the end of that. Then he called me Saturday night, the next night, and asked me to go out on a date again, and I lied again. I have repented for that lie. (laughs) Uh, And and told him I had plans. So what I didn't know was he had been praying for a wife And um, when he saw me, he felt like God said that I was her. And he had told God that night after I turned him down twice, he said, okay, God, three strikes and she's out. I won't ever ask her again. So on Monday, my day off had been changed that week for some reason. And so had his. So we both had Monday off. He called me at 11 o'clock in the morning and he didn't use the date word. That helped. And it was daylight. That helped. And he said... Hey, I'm going for a ride on my motorcycle. Would you like to go with me? And I thought, ooh, I I might be able to do that. It's daylight. It's not a date. Maybe I could do that. And I wouldn't have to talk to him. And then I thought, nah, I can't do it. I cannot tell you to this day how it happened. I can't explain it. I opened my mouth with every intention to say no, and somehow my tongue said yes. I cannot Explain it. And he didn't even bat an eye. He's like, Great, I'll be right there. I'm 15 minutes from you. And I went, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Can I have 30 minutes to get ready? So he came. We went for a ride. We went to the park. And I asked him all the questions that I always said when I was a kid I was going to ask the man I was going to marry. I just, <laughs> Do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you cuss? And are you a Christian? And I just went boom, 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 boom. I mean, probably 30 minutes into our walk, I'm already asking him. Of course, he didn't know that was my criteria for a husband. (laughs) And So he asked me, uh, he would answer me, and he answered every one of them correctly. And then he said, what about you? And I answered him all correctly. I hated drinking, I hated smoking, I hated cussing, and I loved God. And that was it. So I went home that afternoon and told my two little sisters I met the guy I'm going to marry. And I found out Months later, that he went home and told his three brothers that he met the girl he was going to marry. That was in July, October 17th. We got married, so that was 33 years ago, and we lived happily ever after. And Danny is—I um, had not been ever been hugged by a person, only God. So Danny and his three brothers and his mom and dad are the kind of people that would hug a tree if they thought that it would make the tree feel better. So, first time I, he takes me to their house for lunch, I'm not kidding you, I got hugged by everybody and their brother and the cat and the dog, and I left there, got in the car with Danny, and I said, I think I'm bruised. I really believe I'm bruised. I've never had an experience like that in my life. God knew exactly what I needed. He knew I had this Grand Canyon inside of me. That needed to be filled. And he gave it to me in that family. His mom and dad adopted me. Like I was their daughter. I would never been parented. They loved me. They only had four boys. So I was the first girl in the family. And I got treated like a princess. It was just beautiful how God did that. So. um, Fast forward. um, Danny loved me like crazy. served me. He's got a real servant's heart. And showed me. The way Jesus loves the church, and was a great husband. We had two daughters, just the delight of my heart. And ten years into our marriage, everything was perfect. We had we were leaders in the church. We were, I was, um, I was involved in anything and everything. My girls were in kindergarten and first grade, and I was PTA president. I was this. I was that. I was everything. But what had happened in my heart, I didn't know it, but after 10 years, um, I started having flashbacks of the abuse and nightmares. I hated going to sleep. I was tormented. And my dad didn't live far from where we lived, about 15 minutes away. And my dad had always told me when I was little, he said, one day when you're grown, I'm going to find you and I'm going to murder you. So I had that inside me. And I got to the point where I was terrified to leave my house. I wouldn't go anywhere alone, period. If Danny wasn't with me, I didn't go. I just didn't. It got to that point after 10 years. And so, all the way to church even. Yeah, I grew up in this church, but... Danny would get the lecture all the way to church. Don't you leave me alone. Don't you walk away from me. You hold my hand the whole time. And these were people I grew up with. It was it was normal. It was a, a spirit of fear, and I didn't know it at the time. And then on the way home, he'd get the lecture all the way home. Why did you walk away from me, you know? Poor guy. I mean, he was in prison. So it just finally got to the point where I was not functioning and so, Danny, uh, being a, a good man, realized, you got to have some help. We I went into Christian counseling with a Christian psychologist, had a master's degree, a doctor doctorate. I mean, he knew what he was doing. After two years, I was worse than when I went in, and um, actually suicidal. Not because I didn't love my family, not because I didn't love God, I did desperately. But I had so much pain. I could not deal with the pain. And so I went to bed, and I planned out my suicide the next day, wrote, wrote my letters, and I, that was, I was just going to do it. And told God to forgive me in, in advance, and please let me into heaven anyway. <laughs> and um, And I remember thinking, just before I drifted off to sleep, I said, in my heart, it wasn't a prayer. It was not, you know, but God hears the thoughts of your heart. They're prayer. But I just thought, huh, if only I could feel God the way I did when I was a little girl, maybe I could live. And that was my thought. And I drifted off to sleep. Somewhere in that drifting stage, I became aware of a presence. And it was beautiful. I knew it was God, but it was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. It, it had the sensation of like a concrete well being pressed on my body against me, but yet oil pouring through it into me. And to the degree that I couldn't breathe without hurting, I physically felt the pressure on my chest. And finally I said, God, stop it, you're killing me. And later I thought, I bet he, he wanted... He probably had to bite his tongue to keep from saying, Hey, I thought you wanted to die. I'm just helping you here. (laughs) But but, um, I said, God, you're killing me. Stop. And the pressure just lifted just enough that I was comfortable. And I still felt it. And I said, God, what is this? What am I feeling? And he said to me, I heard him loud and clear. He said, Rhonda, this is just the shadow of my love for you. And I thought, the shadow, it's killing me. If that's just the shadow, what in the world is your love like? And I have a theory that that's why we have to have new bodies, because these, these would just blow up, and it would be messy and ugly all over God If when we finally come in contact with the full-blown love of in his heart. So we get new bodies so that we can withstand that pressure of his love. Um. So I said, "Wow!" And I just lay there in the in his presence, letting him love me. And I started telling him, "God, I don't want to live. You know, I'm planning to kill myself tomorrow. I don't have it in me to not do it. You've got to help me. What What am I missing?" And that was when I realized what had happened in my life. For ten years, um, I had. I had realized that God had forgiven me for walking away from him for those two years, but I hadn't forgiven myself. So I had been working to be the perfect Christian, the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect friend, the perfect everything. And in my performance-driven desire to prove to God that I was good enough, I had forgotten all about him. And I was doing everything in the church. And I had completely forgotten about God. And that was my problem. Because you can withstand all kinds of abuse and injustice and starvation and pain if you have God with you. You can I know it. I did it. For 16 years, I did it. Well, from 5 to 16, 11 years. But because I was working so hard for God, I'd forgotten to crawl up in his lap. I'd forgotten to be in relationship. I'd forgotten that that was the number one thing in life. And I became a workaholic for him. So what God? I said, God, okay, I'm sorry, forgive me when I saw that. I said, what do I do? And he said, well, when you were little and you hurt this way, what did you do? I said, well, I'd go in my closet and I'd hide and you'd come. And he said, do it again. So the next morning I I made a bunch of calls and got out of everything I was doing. I'd already cut way back because I was not functioning well. But I got rid of everything I was doing. And Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 3.30, I'd take my Bible and I'd go in my, actually I went in my bathroom because my closet was too small. (laughs) Went in my bathroom and sat on the floor with my Bible and nothing else. And I didn't come out. I didn't come out for lunch. I didn't answer the phone. 8.30, 3.30, Monday through Friday, I sat with God. And I quit performing and I quit doing and I quit trying to be good enough. And I surrendered. And I said, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. This is Here's what you get. If you want me as messed up as I am, this is it. And I remember telling God, you know, I'm like Humpty Dumpty. I've had a great fall. I'm in a million pieces on the floor. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put me back together. I've tried. Nothing's working. And I heard God say, But the king can. And I went, oh, I forgot about the king. (sighs) Forgot about the king. Point exactly. (laughs) So, God did that for the next two years. I stayed in there. And um, God put me back together again. And he healed me. And he delivered me. And he restored to me uh, the joy of my salvation. And also reminded me in a way I'll never forget that it's always about just being with him it's never about what I do ever doesn't matter what you think about me it only matters what he thinks about me and i got i it set me free so i had um God often uses natural things in a prophetic way. When I had polio for a year and a half, my right leg didn't grow, it was paralyzed. So it was shorter, and so I walked with a sideways gait like that. And in that season where God was healing me, we left the church that didn't believe in miracles because believe me, I needed a God that could do <laughs> miracles or I was hopeless. There was no man couldn't help me. And we went to a Spirit-filled Baptist church in Macon, Georgia, and the pastor there was an older gentleman. He was precious, and um, he we made an appointment because I had a million and one questions about God because my history as a child didn't match with my doctrine that I'd been taught. I'd been taught God doesn't speak. Well, I God didn't not only did he speak, but he would come. I mean, he'd hold me. He was real. So I had a lot of confusion over what I'd been taught and what my experience was. So we made an appointment and in the appointment the pastor Starts talking to me about a man years ago that had had polio, and he had one leg shorter than the other, and he, he, you know, like me. And I said, I said, well, that's why I I had polio too. And he says, well, would you like God to heal that? And I went, can He? You know, because I I had had the indoctrination that He couldn't. So he said, yeah, let's just ask Him. So he sees the difference in my legs, has me hold him out, and. Not only was my leg shorter, but it was smaller. It had—it was like withered. So he prays and he asked God to cause that leg to grow out. And I had my eyes closed. I am not kidding you. I felt the bone growing. It was the weirdest sensation you can imagine. This bone right here. I have my I, and I felt that bone going, and I opened my eyes, I looked up and I said, I feel it, I feel it. And my husband says, well, I feel it, I feel it. my leg's shooting out. Well, it shot out past the left leg. It was about that much too long now. And I went, oh, no, oh, no, this is bad. That's not good. That's not good. And the pastor just chuckling. And he pats me on the shoulder. He says, it's okay, watch God, watch God. So he says, now, Lord, bring, I'll never forget his words. He said, Lord, bring everything into perfect balance in her life. And just as he did, that right leg went, and it stopped even with my left leg, and I was relieved. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the oddest thing, though, to walk around. I remember feeling like my leg bone was poking up into my hip socket too far because I hadn't walked that way ever. I was thirty years old and hadn't. It was a. It was just odd to walk around. So. Later on, God was talking to me about that whole deal, and he said, Rhonda, that whole situation is a prophetic truth I don't ever want you to forget. He said, "For the first part of your life, you had all word. it was word, I love the Word, no spirit but word, 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 word in my in my training. Now, my experience was a different matter, but in my training, in my church, God doesn't speak, God doesn't heal." apostle died, it's all done. When the last apostle died, it's done. He said, and look at what you walked crooked. Your walk was crooked. And he said, and then if you come and now you're all spirit, you're in just as bad a shape. And he said, it's the word and the spirit married together that allows you to walk in perfect balance. So I've never forgotten that. I walk it out every day. I think about it probably every day of my life. It's word, it's truth and spirit, truth and spirit, truth and spirit together that allows us to walk a balanced life. So that was um, that was really um, a turning point for me personally in, in understanding the importance of the spirit in our lives today. So... Um, I'm going to tell one more story, and then let's see. Then it'll probably be break time. Right about that time, my husband was out working one day and driving his car, and on his lunch break or something. And this little lady, little old lady, was getting her mail on the street, and she—nobody knows what happened. Whether she passed out or tripped, what happened? but she actually stepped out into the road in front of my husband's car. Her elbow went through his windshield, and <clears throat> my husband got out of the car, and the people there said he was he was trying to literally physically stop cars. Nobody would stop because he was out of his head, screaming for somebody to help him, mm-hmm. and grabbing cars and trying to stop them. Well, finally, um, you know, some people started stopping, and to help the lady and this um, Christian we guess well she's either an angel or a really godly Christian <laughs> this, this um, big black lady stops and goes over to him and f- gets him to calm down and sits on this curb and she said the only way she could get him to calm down was by singing hymns to him so she rocked him and sang while the police and the ambulance and all of that long story short We go to the hospital. He wanted to go see her. She was in intensive care. And uh, we went to see her. We met the family. They assured us. uh, They'd read the police report. It wasn't his fault. We're not going to sue you. We're Christians too. Our whole church is praying for you. Um, We're sorry this happened. Kind of thing. And the doctors said it looked like the lady was going to live. And three days later, she dies. Two days later... We get a lawsuit suing us for everything we had. We didn't have a lot, but. And um, my husband, uh, has, he, he has a real passion for elderly people, so this hit him. He had a great grandmother that was just really powerful in his life, and it just really hit him hard. He was in a place where he couldn't work for over a year and a half, he couldn't drive a car. And so. As a result of that, we were, we were and we, the whole deal with the lawsuit, we lost, we were just poor, poor again. Got to a point where we didn't have any food. Literally, my refrigerator was empty. My cabinets were empty. I Had nothing in the house. My girls were at school, and I'm, I go and sit in the kitchen floor, and I said, God, <laughs> will you send food for my kids? I'm going to serve you whether you do or not for the rest of my life, but will you send food for my kids? And I'm, I'm crying, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm crying. I said, I'm not getting off this floor until you bring us some food. And a few hours later, there's a knock on my front door. It's a lady from our church. She lived about three, five miles past our driveway. She had to pass our driveway to go home. And she says, "Ronda, I hope I'm not going to embarrass you. I hope this is okay, but i got to tell you what just happened to me. I went grocery shopping, and as I drove by your driveway, I heard a little voice say, you need to stop and give Rhonda your groceries. And she said, I was too embarrassed to do it, so I went home. And she said, I pulled in my driveway, and I grabbed my door handle, and she said, God came in my car, and he said, he said, if you don't take those groceries to Rhonda Calhoun, I will kill you. I'll take your life. And she goes, oh. <laughs> she said, I didn't even open my door. She said, and here I am, because I don't want to die. <laughs> now, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure God wouldn't have d- done that, but <laughs> I guess he had to get her attention. I don't know. Cause that's not God's. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to try to explain God. But that's what she told me. I said, Diane, this was another Diane, not my friend Diane. I said, come here. I want to show you something. And I went in the kitchen, opened every cabinet in my refrigerator, and I said, I've been sitting on this floor crying and saying, God, I'm not getting up until you send me some food. <laughs> so we went through. Uh, it took us about five years to re- recover from that, that event, from that lady. Financially, um, we had our car repossessed. It was just a brutal time. But I'm here to tell you, God was faithful. We ended up having to go to church pantries to get groceries. And we experienced the humiliation of most of their systems. And it was our training. We experienced how our dignity was just trashed. And so... um, Fast forward now to 1993. I have two prophetic dreams where the Lord shows me a place to move to that we're going to be moving that year. My husband has a prophetic dream. We end up, God, I won't go into all the detail, but God does an amazing thing to rearrange our lives. We moved to Kansas City in 1993. Didn't know Mike, didn't know the church, didn't know, we didn't know anything except God said come. And so... Uh, Someone in our church in Georgia had had a tape by Mike, and so they loaned it to us. And we thought, oh, that's a church. Let's go visit it and see. So we did. And, And Isaiah 58, 6 through 12 is one of my life verses about feeding the hungry and the poor and taking the stranger into your home. And is this not the fast that I've chosen for you, says the Lord. So we get here. The first Sunday we're here, Mike gets up and he says... I was going to preach about so-and-so, but I feel like the Lord wants me to preach on Isaiah 58, 6, because this is the DNA of who we are. And I'm bawling. I'm like, I'm home. I'm home. If this is who you are, this is who we are. Good fit. So we're here and doing well, and about a few months into our move here, um, God makes it clear that we're to make some changes And what my husband was doing, and so that happens, and... A year later, my husband loses his job and um, I was sewing at home for a very exclusive furniture company making placemats and table runners and chair cushions and very high-end stuff. And um, so when my husband lost his job, we look at each other and go, we're okay. We live very simple. We always have. We've always helped the poor. So we've always lived really way below our means so that we were able to help people we can live off my part-time income because we only had utilities and no car payment none of that stuff i said no problem we'll just and then a week or so later i get a phone call from my employer saying um sorry i forgot to order your fabric i'm leaving the country for six months so you're not gonna have work for six months and i hung up and went now we have a problem so went my prayer closet my bathroom which, by the way, I started calling the throne room because of all my encounters with God, and um, <laughs> went in the throne room and said, "God, what in the world are you doing? We got, you know, what are we doing?" And He just very clearly said, "I want you to feed the poor full-time ministry." And I went, "Lord, that's not a ministry. That's just life." I I was clueless that it was a ministry. Truthfully, it was just a way of life for us. And um, he said, I, I really want you to do this on a full-time basis. So I told my husband, and he said, you know, that's just what God told me. So I'm in. Let's do it. We called Mike. He was our pastor and just asked for his blessing. And he said, great, there's nobody in the church doing that. you got my blessing. And we began reaching out to the poor. God would show us a need, and then we'd get on our face and say, how do we feel that need? And he'd show us. And so we just had all these God just came with favor and uh, brought people to us, to, and we just organized all these outreaches here in, in Grandview, and we were in this church then, and um, in the area, and homeless, and the, the widows, and the orphans, and the nursing homes, and the police department, and et cetera. It was wonderful. We did that. Um, and God told us in the very beginning, he said, don't tell anyone what you're doing. I want to prove to you that I can support you. So we didn't tell anybody except Mike. We ran out of money (laughs) real quick because we never had a lot. You know, (laughs) we just gave it away. We had a few hundred dollars or so, and we ran out. And then um, what happened was our car payment was due the next day. Not our car payment, our house payment. We didn't have the money for the house payment. And that morning, the morning before it was due, Danny and I are looking at each other going, this is going to be fun. Nobody knows. And we can't tell anybody except God. And we get a phone call. Someone uh, in the church that we didn't know called us and invited us to his house for dinner. And um, this was about six weeks into us feeding the poor. So nobody really knew about us at this point. We were just secretly doing what we were doing. And so he didn't know. We went to his house for dinner that night. And he says at dinner, he says, I was praying this morning and God spoke your name to me and said for me to give you something. And he handed us a check for $7,000. And he said, and he had tears pouring down his face. This man says, God said to tell you that he loves you and he absolutely loves what you're doing. And then the guy says, what are you doing? (laughs) I loved it. Um, so we told him what we were doing. And, but that's how it was. God just provided for us, and what we would do is we'd pay our bills, and we, my husband and I, in the very early on, to keep us from being corrupted by money because we believed that there would be uh, millions of dollars. We believed that. So what we did was we covenanted together to never exceed... Um, I think at that time it was $15,000 a year. If, if 50000 came in, our salary would only be 15000 And so, um, and, what, and the other thing we, we agreed was whatever came in for the month, we wouldn't put it back. If it came in, if $7,000 came in, we'd pay ourselves our $1,100 a month and the rest of it we'd give away so we didn't roll it forward and, and that's what we did and God was faithful every single time to take care of us there was one time in 15 years that our light payment was late and I kept going to the Lord I don't understand Lord why we had to pay a late fee you just wasted $35 of your money God on a late fee what show me And a few days later, I get a phone call from a lady in Alabama, and she says, I'm calling to apologize to you. She said, the Lord told me to send you, and I can't remember the dollar amount, let's just say $125. The Lord told me last week to send you $125, and I didn't do it. And this morning, the Lord just came all over me and said, you call her and tell her I was supposed to send that last week. Which would have paid our light bill. Because it was whatever the amount was, it was exactly our light bill. And so she said, she said, and because I didn't do it, the Lord told me this morning to add $35 to it. So I'm mailing it today. And I went, oh, sweet. So that was just God's way of proving that he can take care of you. If you give yourself wholeheartedly to God, he will take care of you. Now the Lord told me a few months back he said Rhonda I am not interested in you being comfortable I'm interested in you being Christ like so am I always comfortable right now I am (laughs) but I haven't always been I haven't always been so and my uncomfortableness now is a whole different comes from a whole different reason than before um Our journey has been, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life to be a Christian and to be wholeheartedly after God, but I wouldn't change it for anything. So um, anyway, fast forward now to IHOP. We were, we were, been part of Metro from the, from 93, and then IHOP starts and Um. We'd always been a part of the prayer ministry because we've prayer is foundational for anything you do has to be and has to stay in the forefront of everything you do and prayer slash relationship. You know, there's two kinds of prayer. There's the where you intercede and you ask for things and then there's the kind where you just sit. Lord, what do you want today? And you just give yourself to God. So it's both of those. And. We became part of IHOP and loved that. And then um, in November of of 2006, I have a dream where the Lord appears to me. And I have to tell you this. I have to back up. 1976, on October 17th, my husband and I got married. And the day after we were married, I asked him, I said, if money was no object and you could do anything you wanted with your life, what would you do? And he said, well, I'd buy a farm. And I'd built homes for women and children in crisis. And truthfully, that was when I knew I'd married the right man. Because <laughs> he didn't, a little late, because uh, <laughs> I already married him. But um, I had never told him that when I was 12 years old, I asked my mom, why don't you leave, Dad? Why do you stay? And she looked at me and she said, she said I have five children, no job, no car, no money, and nobody to help me. Where would I go and what would I do? And at 12, I remember running out of the house. I ran out in the field, just threw myself down, and I said, God, when I grow up, I want to buy a farm. I want to buy land, and I want to build homes for women and children just like me. He didn't know that. And so when he answered, when he said that, and then I shared with him what happened when I was 12 we decided at that time that every day of our married life, we would pray and ask God to make that dream come true. So in November of 2006, I have this dream where Jesus comes to me, and he says, Rhonda, I've heard your prayers. The bowl in heaven is full, and in 2007, I'm going to give you that farm. So that was 30 years of praying every day. And that's exactly what happened. Let's take a break and then I'll, I'll, leave, yeah, I'll tell you that story because that's a story in and of itself of God's amazing ways. So let's take a break and then we'll come back and go again.